Hello, friends. Welcome back to Alfie Bunga Bunga. What you're about to hear is the last part of our interview with Paulo Gerbado on his book, The Great Recoil. And that will be followed by the after party where Phil, George and myself discuss in more depth what we've learned and try to tease out some of the broader issues. If you're new to us and you've just subscribed, thank you very much for joining. We hope you enjoy. Happy listening. You talk about mm. the age of the pangolin, which is kind mm. of, uh, you know, coming, I guess, uh, which is a, a harmless creature. It, does, it doesn't attack, you know, but it's, uh, it curls up and protects. It's the only mammal with scales. You helpfully point out in the mm. book. So I learned something. Uh, I learned many <laughs> things, but I also learned that little fact. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can contrast that because it's able to protect, right, um, to an aggressive territorial defensiveness of the lobster mm. uh, jordan peterson's favorite animal uh <laughs> and you see this these sorts of two images of protection but i guess metaphors for the left and the right in this new post neoliberal era is that is that right or i mean i think mostly because i'm trying in a way to sell the idea of protection to the left uh, which is very cautious and very skeptical about it a because it sees protection as conservation, conservatism. I mean, I think many people have already heard kind of think this. While I think is actually wrong. I mean, like it says that the left has always been about social protection, and social security. There's nothing wrong with protection. It is a fundamental social instinct. But do you think and, the left? Sorry, just, but you think the left today is scared? Not not really into protection. Is that still a little bit? I mean, I, I'm actually think. Many more people these days are open to, the, to these ideas and actually have been kind of positively surprised by, I mean, the, the people who have read the book, uh, mostly they were kind of appreciating these ideas and finding them useful for, for thinking about concrete campaigns or concrete issues. But for example, I mean, I think that indeed people are right to be uh, worried about the fact that protection may mean uh, aggressivity, may mean mm. war. Right, may mean something territorial jealousy for territorial jealousy's sake, yeah, uh, as it is represented by the lobster. So I felt the need to point out that actually protection of self-defense doesn't need at all to be aggressive. And and, and the case of, of of the pangolin is quite beautiful because the pangolin is a very brave creature because the poor guy has to fight against lions, against tigers, against all sorts of beasts, and often actually manages to save its skin. And uh, that is actually, I think, more the case of many nation states these days. Uh, they, yeah. they are, uh, I mean, you have big lobsters like the US and China or perhaps, perhaps Russia. But then there are many countries, um, semi-central or semi-peripheral countries. I'm thinking about my home country, Italy. I think about uh, whatever, Morocco. I'm thinking about uh, uh, Spain. I'm thinking about Brazil, perhaps. Though Brazil is more of a mega state, uh, perhaps going into the higher ladder uh, than, than other countries. But these countries, for a long time, had, in a way, to elbow out uh, pressure from outside and more and more this will be the case yeah as mega states will try to impose the spheres of influence uh, so in that case actually defending national sovereignty and say hey wait a sec this is our territory and we want to decide the mm-hmm. things that happen here is a fundamental democratic and republican instinct that is profoundly progressive yeah uh, and, and, and therefore, the defensiveness is only good, should be celebrated and, and, and strengthened. So I, I like that element of it. Um, I'm convinced by that. The other side of it, I guess, is what would happen inside the pangolin or inside its protective shell, which is the 
drive towards protection rather than control or self-rule sounds to me too much like liberal paternalism. Mm-hmm. And I think the left is actually, maybe contradistinction to what you said, mm-hmm. quite inclined towards protection. In fact, that's mm-hmm. what it tries to and has tried to offer people mm-hmm. in its sort of you know retro social democratic form mm-hmm. of trying to do welfareism of, uh, you know, as we've seen also with the pandemic to try to mm-hmm. control people and to protect them from from the possibility of getting ill um, to protect minorities, you know, mm-hmm. vulnerable minorities, which are the, the left's constant sort of object. Safe um, spaces. Safe spaces and that kind of thing. Safety nets. Exactly. And, or UBI, you know, which is another way of mm-hmm. protecting people from the worst depredations of capitalism, mm-hmm. but without giving them any agency. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's sort of a, mm-hmm. a, a perhaps I, descriptively, I agree with you that that's what looks like it's coming, but I, I'm not sure I would endorse that vision. Yeah, normatively. Yeah. yeah, I see your point completely. And I think, I mean, there is a problem there uh, between uh, protection and control in, in a sense that indeed uh, protectivism not accompanied by democratic control risks being a paternalism that actually uh, perhaps addresses some social concerns, but then doesn't address a major social problem these days, which is the crisis of political trust, right? And is the sense of an emptying out of democracy. Yeah. Therefore, control should always go in tandem with uh, uh, protection. Uh, on the one hand, more protection will mean more state control, more collective control from above, right? And this is something that often people resent. Meanwhile, many people or the majority of people will be very happy with more social protection, environmental protection. The collective controls, this is bound to carry in tow. Uh, will not be as well received. Uh, and we are actually <laughs> already seen that, like precisely yeah. with the pandemic, right? Um, health protection, wonderful, as long as it doesn't control. Well, and it's also because, as you said, it's received, right? This mm-hmm. is something of which you are an object rather mm-hmm. than necessarily uh, an agent. Exactly. And then there's the point of democratic control, which is fundamental in the sense that if a protectivist society has to be made politically sustainable, an increase in protection should be accompanied uh, by an increase in democratic control from below, from the grassroots. Why? Because I think one of the fundamental reasons why ordinary people suspect socialism is because they think that it would merely be a move from uh, the uh, dictatorship of the market and entrepreneurs to a dictatorship of intellectuals. Yeah taking away uh, where people would anyway not be in the driving seat. Yeah. They would just basically need to, to hope that the intellectuals uh, do their, their, their good, uh, which uh, sometimes throughout history has not been the case. So that, that is why it's fundamental that we don't go back to the technocratic form of social democracy, right? yeah. for example, of the 60s or, or the 70s. That's something that is truly democratic uh, and determined from the grassroots uh, substitutes failing neoliberalism. Yeah, very good. So we're going to move to the very last section mm-hmm. here. I've got two questions. Um, fear actually dominates the book, right? Mm-hmm. And in one sense, you're already kind of the cover. already the cover. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I just see that now that it's a that it's a virus, I, th- I think, or some biological image yeah. and a, and a, and and a globe. It's emergency orange. Emergency orange. Is that the name of the color? That's very good. I always like to know the name of colors. Um, fear dominates the book. 
and the image that you present in some ways is is hopeful. Mm-hmm. I think you're trying to be hopeful about you know moving beyond neoliberalism, mm-hmm. the idea that this uh, move towards um, inwardness might be more productive of democratic politics than this uh, exterioriza- exteriorization of neoliberalism. Um, or, you know, in a different way that we're moving towards more public capitalism, which might be more productive as well. You know, if uh, politicians take responsibility for outcomes, then you can hold them to account. Whereas when they don't take responsibility for outcomes, it's very hard to get your hook into them. Mm-hmm. So that's all good. On the other hand, the image that you present of left, right and center uh, mm-hmm. in this sort of neo status synthesis that's going to emerge, all sides are dom- dominated by fear, by a mm-hmm. sort of... Uh, aversion to uh, the world to and I'm not making an argument for you know, cosmopolitan openness mm-hmm. but 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 a kind of an aversion to the future right of, of mm-hmm. need to be protected and I I, I wonder one whether that is a a, a, a a promising vision I mean it's natural I think looking at it from the point of view that's still in the pandemic that fear would dominate things but I don't see that as a ground for radical mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. Um there's another thing, and I'm just going to throw this in there and feel free to ignore me or respond to it, but that you refer to various forms of politics of fear, often peddled by the nationalist right, often in relation to migrants, but not only. Um, and they, you argue that liberals take the influence of fear in politics as tantamount to barbarism. But that struck me because I was like, wow, no, I because I think, mm-hmm. yes, there's no doubt a right-wing politics of fear, but there's a very much a liberal centrist Mm. politics of fear and you can see that in the pandemic for example and there's a left-wing politics of fear as well and you talking about uh you know ecological emergency and devastation which is immediately and impending and about which we can do almost nothing uh is a left-wing politics of fear mm-hmm. and the the constant claims of an impending fascist takeover is its own left-wing mm-hmm. politics of fear i think so um how do we how do we navigate that i mean Yes, I mean, there is a more general kind of philosophical point there uh, that for too long uh, we had this politics of desire, which has a bit run its course. I mean, thinking about Lyotard, you know, the, the infamous sentence on uh, workers or miners enjoying their own suffering, where even like joy was so universal, that even people mm. suffering were enjoying that. And I mean, and fear is a fundamental human uh, process. It, so deeply embedded in our brain, right? It is uh, the most primordial part of our brain because obviously organisms, the mm, first urgency is uh, being alive, right? So even a spider will have fear, even a fly will have fear. We don't know if uh, they also have joy. (laughs) but uh, Let's hope not. I hate spiders. (laughs) But uh, what that means is that it is an emotion which... uh, uh, cannot be just denounced as uh, stupidity or as why are people afraid? Why? Because the people who often suspect that are people who are uh, sheltered and have whatever, a lot of personal safety nets. Sure, sure. Vis-a-vis kind of social safety nets. So they don't even pose themselves the question of fear. Um, we are in an era that is a bit dark, uh, for how much we want to be optimistic, in a sense, it is a phase of decline in, in many respects. So it is only natural that fear is going to be the dominant mm. force. Uh, but my um, sense is that th- there can be productive ways or constructive ways through which this fear can be used as a fuel, as an energy for transformation. Mm-hmm. Right? 
um, understanding that there is a fundamental reason why people are afraid because they've been thrown into an open space without uh, personal and social protective equipment. Yeah. This is something that throughout society, I mean, uh, Richard Sennett made a very good point, right? In the 60s, in the 70s, when you had these communes and there was this sense of radical openness. There should be no family units anymore. Mm -hmm. Everything should be in public and nothing should be private anymore. Actually, what that produced to people in that community was a retrenchment to their private space. Yeah. Because when you are so exposed to social control, in that case, of a community, people actually lose their desire for social interaction. Mm-hmm. Actually, people lose their desire for authentic uh, um, communal life. And I think that applies more generally to, to society, to global society. Right. I mean, it's all fine to have an, some open society in a certain sense, that people are allowed to travel, that there is tolerance. But if you don't give people the means uh, to protect themselves against the negative um, effects of the condition, the automatic option for them will be retrenchment. Yeah, that's very good. Um, maybe we will leave it there. Uh, I guess that that's uh, maybe a more optimistic way of reading the, 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 the question of fear um, and of, uh, you know, politics that is able to respond to fear productively rather than uh, devolving into a competing politics of fear, which I think we can also maybe perhaps envisage emerging, which would be very, uh, very bad, you know, left and right proposing their own dangers from which uh, they need to protect people. And I think that um, competing politics of fear would just lead to the creation of of a lot more fear. So that's, that's very good. Thank you for, uh, thank you for having me here in your flat. Uh, Thanks, Alex. It was a pleasure. All right, we're back. It's Alex, George, and Phil, and this is the after party. Welcome. Uh, Welcome the, back the, to the after party. These, uh, yeah, people have been clamoring for these, haven't they? I yeah. mean, by clamoring, there were a couple of people who said <laughs> <laughs> they, thought, they thought they were really good. Uh, so we're bringing them back for our fans. Yeah, this is a place where we discuss what we you've just heard in the interview, where often the interview will be conducted by just one of us uh, to kind of explore some of these issues in, in more depth and, and kind of debate them and tease them out. Also to kind of think, what have we learnt to kind of do some of that metacognition, you know, what, what have you learned? It really metacognition. The if you ask <laughs> students what have you learned, then it's a very effective way to. to it's the most annoying to thing to be asked in the world as a student. Yeah, and it's and it's and also patronising to our listeners. You always lose the students. Take it from somebody who teaches for a living. Whenever you say Take that, somebody who loses students for a living. Oh, I do lose don't lose huh? students. I would lose students if I used that technique. One of uh, a student of mine in a <clears throat> in an end of term, uh, whatever like feedback form, said, um, "I now know that I don't. I now know that I don't know anything," um, which was like, "Oh yeah, okay, that's that means I've well, but those I've, the, I've those actually taken them backwards. Un, those are the known unknowns. So, I've yeah. taken them backwards. Like student, well, it sounds like they were. It sounds like he's you. performed a cognitive mapping of uh, <laughs> no, the, world, the, the state of intellectual whatever. Anyway. Uh, about the interview about Paolo's book, The Great Recoil, uh, which is definitely worth reading. Um, as I said in the introduction, it treads similar ground to, to our book, and no doubt there'll be many books coming out in the future, which also try to divine yeah. what the post-neoliberal uh, arrangement yeah. will be, right? 
I mean, I suppose so. One thing that struck me listening to, um, and so I've not read the book yet, but um, obviously I'm looking forward to it very much. But one thing that struck me listening to your chat with with Paolo was, um, I suppose, this question of the protective state and whether it really, and you pushed him on this, and I suppose it's worth kind of pushing a bit more, um, whether or not the protective state was ever really absent. Um, I mean, not least because if we think about the, you know, I mean, so in my kind of field of academic expertise, wars at the end of history, very much the protective state um, in a very particular form, the kind of the uh, the supranational um, kind of state alliance, NATO or the United Nations. Um, but that was all about the politics of protection, um, passive kind of vulnerable um uh, human rights victims needing to be um, bombed from above or um, recipients of the aid drop. But those for for other states who weren't deserving of sovereignty were but Sure. <clears throat> but I mean, I guess, the point being that it was a yeah. very kind of, you know, it's a prevalent, the politics of protection is a prevalent model. And as we've discussed extensively also, that kind of uh, politics, that model of politics as charity. I mean, you know, that was Hillary Clinton's campaign, essentially, which lost her 2016. It's also become the model of uh, domestic politics in the West that we shower. The state is there to kind of offer some degree of protections, but no control. But and that is the way it gains legitimacy. Two points. Firstly, Hillary didn't lose in, in 2016. She had it robbed from her by... By, by the Electoral College. Her, her control. Um, anyway, uh, second second point. I guess the, the kind of... I don't know. The <clears throat> There's probably a, a relation between the kind of i don't know how would you put it the re- responsibility to protect uh, internationally and then risk society domestically and the kind of construction of vulnerability which is which is something which culturally yeah maybe it never went away this is something which was was definitely in in the in the 90s in new labor's kind of petty authoritarianism there was a lot of like not social engineering is a in some ways a form of protection because it's like you need to be protected from yourself um by having your behavior change but but i think there's a i think there's a qualitative shift that happens and that is under that is underway right now which yeah is, but what which is, is it a, i guess but, this is what we're okay trying so to i'm gonna try to, i'm gonna try to spell it out and i'll see whether i'm successful or not but um the, yeah, we'll, the, we'll we'll see whether you're we'll, successful we'll or not. be the judges of that alex uh yeah. the point is that you move from there being humanitarian victims, needy people out there that you need to protect, whether they are about to be victims of uh, state violence or whether they uh, are living in a failed state, right? Whether, whether whether it's Iraq, you know, or it's Somalia, you know, it's kind of two different versions of that. Um, what the current moment, I think, is about in many ways is making domestic populations in powerful states, uh, in Western states, uh, humanitarian objects of humanitarianism. So I think there's an element to which humanitarianism is coming home, and <laughs> I you can knew see it. I, no, you're, okay, you're well, right. Let me, let me finish. It's the coming point home. Because, it's coming. <laughs> that's not what I'm doing here. Humanitarianism's um, coming home. Okay, so the uh, the point is that the you can see it within the U.S. as well, where you have the war on terror, which is another aspect of what Phil talking about and what Phil studies in, in relation to international relations also being brought home where you have um, these you know domestic terrorists which need to be dealt with and I think in, in many ways what we're seeing is a lot of features of the end of history kind of being imported domestically and what was particular about the end of history was precise that these things were externalized exteriorized and now they're coming home where, th- where this relates to Paolo's book and what you'll have heard in the interview is this notion of interiority or things coming back 
in a way. And I, this is a so if neoliberal the, the peak neoliberal period, the end of history, etc., was all about putting things to the outside, right? Treating treating humanitarian victims over there. Now it's all about bringing things home. I guess I mean the there's a shift in the politics of protection. I'm sure. Paolo's right about that. I'm not quite sure, you know, where it lies exactly. I mean, that's the thing, I guess. And one thing that was part of the Blairite package and that kind of um, peak point of neoliberalism was the enabling state, right? So it was the kind of the state that empowered you. It provided you with loans in order to do education so you could become kind of an um, an adaptable citizen to, you know, respond to the latest kind of vagaries of the global economy. Um, it would empower you and it would be um, supportive without being overbearing. I mean, that was, you know, the model of state legitimacy in that period, I think. I think that is gone. And so I think there will be a kind of a new protective contract. And I think it probably will be um, protective in the sense of um, it will seek to legitimate itself through sheltering citizens from these kind of um, threats, whether they're kind of biological threats of new pandemics or climate change threats, or um, domestic terrorism, perhaps, um, but without offering the kind of uh, scope of control that the old social democratic welfare state did. I mean, in a limited way, but it the you know it had the kind of the um, the way in which it offered it was through the participation as a member of a nation, right, and the kind of the internal political structures, and that's gone. So we're still atomized. But now we're going to be protected rather than enabled. And I think that that is coming. So, yeah, yeah I, I guess one sort of question here is what comes first, the protective state or the vulnerable citizen? They obviously dialectically are in a... In, and I'm, wave your hands I'm waving around. my hands around. Yeah, like um, Alex. Like, like a, it's... That's a reference to so the on previous so episode, but anyway. Yeah. Um, what was my... Yeah, so which, which comes first is... is quite tricky but clearly they're they're in a they're in a, a, a close uh, relationship and that's that's one of the fundamental i guess constructions of of citizens in you know it has been for, for a little while that there 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 is a, a fundamental need reasons for fear and need for um protection i think one of the things that i i don't think i agree with paolo on is whether control is a, is a means to protection or I guess it's possibly unclear in terms of the way that he's, you know, um, presenting it, whether this is what he would say should be the case or this is the dominant, like, way of um, linking these two things. Because, of course, like, if, if you, from a, you know, if you just reduce control down to um, a means um, to, to protect, then you're dispensing with a very... A large kind of section of of potential freedoms which come from self-government yeah and that's something that we touched on in the interview and was i mean paulo kind of recognized this element and i kind of try to push him on it about whether you know protection is the end and whether fundamentally in the book at least whether that is a a normative vision whether he's proposing that protection should be an end or whether he's describing processes which are well it's it's, i mean it's yeah it's a good it's a good read a good question i think on this but one thing that maybe to to kind of draw out some of these ideas around particularly around sovereignty which i'm you know i think is a really important concept in the book and i think obviously a really important one for for contemporary politics the um, just to kind of like talk a little bit about the model 
that he that he develops in terms of the kind of post neoliberal horizon it's quite similar i think to the one that we that we kind of stake out in in our book so say what say what ours is before you introduce that um so ours is basically that you have like the the left is moral minority moral minoritarianism um and so like basically non majoritarian um kind of pmc interest like projects and become sort of parasitic on what is mainly happening becomes a the kind of in-house moral critic of the mainstream yeah and then the 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 kind of the center or sort of center right is a form of yeah neo-statism or we call it state capitalism in in the book which is basically post-neoliberal conservatism in the british context just like big spending state like junking thatcherism junking like some of those aspects of neoliberalism um and it's not, you know, not not dissimilar to the the sort of model that that Paolo um, sketches out. That you have neoliberalism, and then a populist um, antithesis, um, which has a new socialist left, which is the kind of the, the left populist um, faction, uh, a new nationalist right, which is kind of Bolsonaro, Johnson, like all, all, Modi, you know, yeah, uh, Le Pen, Salvini, blah blah blah, and then out of this you get a neo statist. Um, synthesis. So this is the kind of the post neoliberal, the new um, centre ground, the new centre ground, which is right, right, isn't it? Um, and and that's something yeah. that we're seeing emerging pretty clearly already in the US with Biden, uh, with Johnson in in uh, in the UK. I guess the jury's out about whether Macron's doing this in France. But anyway, I think there's obviously something emerging there, One... which will be important. And, and what's more important is that the US is doing it, because of course that will be influential yeah. in, in terms of those seeking to emulate it. One thing about this neo-statism, though, is that it's a <clears throat> it's a it's a statism of a failed of failed states. Like the state capacities have been so, and this I think has only been really been it's a really good made point, clear. Yeah. Thank you. Um, has only really been made clear during during <laughs> during COVID. Um, that like so, I would call it. A f- so I, I, you know, if we were to rewrite that chapter, failed state capitalism. So it's like, how do you combine a completely like hollowed out state apparatus with um, a, a turning towards it as the way to solve? Um, well, to solve but, but you see this quite clearly, like on the new uh, communitarian slash nationalist right who are talking about industrial policy all the time and yeah. really focused on rebuilding state capacities, right? And that and it goes well beyond just Trumpian-style revisions to trade treaties uh, yeah, so and to reshore production, but, but something that more is thorough going. Yeah, and the question is, and I'm not sure that I was satisfied with the way, I mean, you pushed him on this, I'm not sure I was satisfied with the way you, uh, Paolo, responded. So it's a question of control. Who will control these processes? Because, you know, this, this is ha- going to happen. Um, who will be in charge you'll be in control and i think i mean in the book i mean paolo has like a table i mean i mentioned i've not read it but i've seen the table flipping through it um where he kind of maps out the political content of the different um on the political spectrum and he puts sovereignty in the part of the kind of on the part of the left and historically that's true but um, it's precisely what the left has abandoned over the last the populist left and their defeats over the last 10 years, it's precisely sovereignty that they've abandoned. Syriza in Greece, Corbyn in the UK, um, and also uh, Macron in France and the socialists in France. Um, and I think you can make a similar case for um, Podemos in Spain. Or, or the way that they've done it, and what is clear in Paulo's book with the examples that he gives, is that the po- left populists' interest in popular sovereignty went only as far as uh, um, asserting the right of the public over private interests, right? So a kind of democratic claim 
a basically anti-neoliberal, anti-austerity yeah. left, that, right? That... Which is which is important. It's part of the picture. But yeah. as Phil rightly says, they don't broach and didn't broach the question of uh, of national sovereignty. As no, the, no, as, 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 no, no, that's, that's, that's not, that, no, that's wrong. They did broach it and they turned against it. No, no, okay, yes, and that, that's no, what that's, I'm getting no, at. And, that's, yeah. and I think that's important, that it's not that they were for it or that it was limited, it's that they were actively against it. And I think it's I think it's really important to make that point in characterizing. I think the left prop because I think I, I I know what I mean. Your experience you're speaking about in Britain. Where I'm speaking they from I'm it. speaking from my lived experience. You exactly. can speak from yours, <laughs> right? And so what they're in many cases. Theresa, and, and, and a lot a lot of the left a lot of exactly, but a lot of the left discussion was like we don't want to deal with this question of national sovereignty. It's complicated because the question of the EU, for example, in the European context, is just between two different not parts just, of the elite. Not just and we're complicated, not, we're, but dangerous. We're just going to focus. We're just going to focus on welfare. Yeah. We're going to focus on labour rights, and we're not interested in yeah, these sure. big but political not ju- questions. Not but just, that, not just kind of, um, not just complicated, but actively dangerous. But that is that is the opposite of what popular sovereignty means, yeah. because it's yeah. not treating people working class people any people as subjects it's treating them as objects and we've made this point yeah. on the podcast a lot and if this you is give where the protection stuff, thing comes in that's one thing yeah Prote- exactly exactly so there is a there is a kind of i think there's a consistent maybe development there but i, I don't think i agree with that that particular point in the in the characterization yeah so i think i mean i'd agree with that and i think the other element which i thought paolo you know kind of or mr beat perhaps at least in the interview if not in the book um, was about class, you know. So he mentions this point about people kind of being um, resistant to control, and this was evident in the pandemic, in the lo- responses to lockdown, and so on. And that it's understandable to some degree, but you know, I mean, it's obviously something which breaks down in kind of complex ways. Um, the middle classes quite enjoy um, uh, control and discipline, and they get off on it, and particularly when it's applied to other people. Um, and this is why they're so committed to um, the virtue signaling kind of aspects of lockdown, as well as virtue signaling in general. So, I mean, the way in which um, these kind of battles over um, uh, the symbols of um, self-discipline um, and the symbols of like um, commitment, those become battles over control. Um, and so it breaks down in different ways. But I think, you know, what is lacking, I think, in um, on all across the political spectrum still remains that question of who is able to kind of stand for a collective collective self-rule to which we all can willingly submit. And no one seems to be able to offer a vision well, or maybe, a compelling... Maybe somebody needs to. Because I think the, 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 the way that Paolo traces it out in terms of this like this kind of protective neostatism, having the social protection on the left and the proprietarian, proprietarian protectionism on the right protection of property i think there's there's something to that although i find the characterization of the the left in terms of social protection the kind of spirit of 45 this a socialism that protects i could see i could see that developing i could see that um as a kind of post-pandemic um strand which could be quite i mean it, it's there be, and it's but, po- and it's popular right it, those policies are very popular what isn't popular is the left you know basically well, the, the left would be more successful if it weren't for leftists <laughs> Um, which is maybe, the, maybe, but I—that's—that's. That's, I wouldn't. I don't find that appealing at all. No, but people want people want uh, their pensions guaranteed, right? Any time that they try to fuck with pensions, there's huge protests everywhere. Yeah. Um, people want 
certain welfare rights, they want labor rights, etc. Right. So they. These it's not are, a majoritarian project to say that like protection of the environment. I just don't. No, think, no. Protection I, of the environment is a different. If you, if you, a different and if you push, if you push that through, protection of the environment is a, is a, not what I mentioned. What is not what we're talking about. That's. Right, a, that's talk, a I mean, point. it's it's in the it's in the characterization. Yeah, no, green, but social Green New Deal. But but actually no, and, and there are lots of policy. There's lots of um, survey evidence that shows that people are very against pollution and want protection from pollution. They don't care about climate change. Which is interesting and something that needs exploring and untangling effectively, because the pollution is something seen that they that affects them intimately, right? If you have the air being polluted and you have asthma and you can't breathe properly, or you have polluted water, etc., yeah, that's something it, that people it, see right, very. But it's not mysterious. I mean, whereas, so climate not, change is something abstract and remote and difficult, and 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 most things responding to climate change just say your living standards are going to get worse, and which is why people are yeah. are often skeptical of of measures sure yeah you should be skeptical of anybody who's trying to sell you something which is going to make your your life you worse, worse off, yeah. yeah but i mean like yeah i think that the reason why I'd, why I'd, i would would be would reject that essentially is that it's a response to fear right i mean the, the protection is a response to is a yeah response to fear. and i think i think it's so to move on to that uh topic good uh good like uh what do you call it like good prompt for the segue there um the question of fear is something that i yeah we'd explored in the interview and what I was wondering is, did the politics of fear, if not quite go away, abate a bit in recent years? And now it's back, you know, under COVID, because the politics of fear was something that was hugely discussed around the time of 9-11 and, and after. And fear of terrorism was a huge um, way that states legitimized themselves and say, we're going to protect you from terrorism and made it everything about terrorism. And it was often hard to argue against. But, you know, you had to say, well, you know, People aren't dying from terrorism. You know, the, the victims of terrorism were much higher in the 1970s in Europe than they were in the 2010s or the 2000s even. With COVID, the politics of fear are more effective because people are genuinely scared and it's something that does affect See, a lot more people than terrorism. I'm not so sure. So I'd say but, two things. I think I think the numbers are actually wrong. So I know those are the numbers that are made for terrorism, but I think, um, you know, that's a kind of it's a counting error effectively because it's counting war in Northern Ireland as um, as an yeah. episode of terrorism when it's that's the war in Northern Ireland is very different from say the Bataclan massacre and jihadis kind of terrorism of mass murder or indeed the RAF activities sure. in Germany or whatever yeah so I mean but that aside I mean I think no it didn't go away and I mean I think the experience of lockdown of atomization of the kind of the blunder, the blundering and um, expansive authoritarianism of governments in the in the lockdown indicates the politics of fear was there, and um, it didn't need to be. Rea it, it wasn't difficult to reactivate. Mm, I think that's a good way to put it, but it hasn't. I, but it has I been reactivated. I mean, I think that's the important thing. Yeah, yeah. It hasn't. Been, it has been reactivated. It's it's lying. It's it's been dormant. To use a I mean, it's know, biological been used by the metaphor. right around immigration, but, certainly. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But I think the. Like people aren't, or I haven't heard many people talking about the politics of fear, like in mainstream um, um, analyses. It ha this is this is much more of a of a kind of uh, objective fact, but that's right? objective the, biological that's fact. The, that's because of the naturalization of of, and so, of the emergency. And so, in fact, maybe that's the the point is that the pol politics of fear is much more effective it, to the extent it can be naturalized, and the, to the extent that. This is something that, you know, we, is not in our control and is, a, you know, a true fetish. And we're all sense. threats to each other. I think also that's an important part of it. So are you, a solidaristic... Are you threatening me by, by saying that? I'm always threatening you. Okay. Um, there's that's always threatening in the, dis itself. the disabling 
the way in which it disables um, any kind of solidaristic response and the fact that um, the government of the lockdown involves so much kind of, um, well, literal literal and metaphorical kind of social distancing, symbols of separation. Um, I think all of that is an important part of the politics of fear. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, this week there was a video circulating on social media of the health authority, the head of the health authority of New South Wales, uh, Australian state where Sydney's based, think i hope i got that right wrong i mean uh where she's basically saying don't go out don't see your neighbors if you see your neighbors this is not the time to go say hi to them keep your dis and it's like you know whatever you think of like various different sanitary measures that have been that have been done throughout the throughout the you know throughout the pandemic like that is just a level of anti-social pathology which is almost almost like yeah. hard to yeah. believe out of all proportion to the actual but, pandemic but, but, but it kind of does express in much clearer language what is underlying a lot of the other measures right yeah. Yeah. it's yeah it's it's very it's very troubling very sad but anyway so so i mean i guess what what I tried to bring out in the interview as well is that we might end up with a competing politics of fear, right? Yeah. Uh, where the right has its own politics of fear and the left has its own. You know, it has anti-fascism, it has yes. climate disaster, etc. Yes. And yes. that would be, that obviously would synthesize into a protective state yes. where different agents of left and right are trying to, you know, effectively of the capitalist parties of the left and right trying to offer different forms of protection, I protection think, against yes. different things. I think, and that's, I, yes. I, think we already, I think we already have this, like the fascism blackmail and the environmental blackmail. I think these are these are two so fascist blackmail, which you know we've we've talked about previously. And I think it you know it, it it makes sense, right? Because the and that is a that is a politics of fear kind of logic that it's like, do you want this thing to happen? If you want this thing to happen, then keep doing what you're doing. Um, and the fascists will take over, or the like. The, the world will will melt down. And and what's missing is any sort of collective vision which yeah. demands things of citizens in a way. Which, uh, you know, to to actually take charge of their own lives in a way that right now, all the politics of fear is basically you are passive and vulnerable and we will protect you. And and yeah, and I guess there's another layer on that as well. It's like, don't uh, don't act in concert, like physically together, because then you're all going to it's going to be a super spreader event. It's going to be like mass contagion. I mean, this is, you know, this is, you know, maybe this is something which has become clearer in the last 17 you know politics is a super spreading event yeah let's spread the revolution no let's spread the the i don't know the, the bunga virus yeah free purple pills for you everyone. can't you get bunga pills you can't get jabbed from the for the bunga virus maybe what uh, you yeah. can't get inoculated you can't like it's there's no known cure or mitigation i think wouldn't it be better if we inoculated people with with the Bunga vaccine, wouldn't that be better? Okay, we're, we're, that we're, sounds we're, 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 creepy. Like door to door. Hi, can I can I just uh, inject well, you? Do you have a few minutes to spare to talk about the end of the end of history? <laughs> All right, we're going to leave this here. Are you concerned about the end of the end of history? <laughs> if so, we might have a cure. Anyway, yeah, sorry. Anyway, sorry. Uh, you, let, let's have some finishing. like let's have some positive collective vision that uh, demands something collectively of of one another rather than recoiling to fear and demanding protection. Yeah, let's. Let's. Yeah, let's. let's. All right. Come on, we can bloody do it. Come on. <laughs> sorry. All right, we'll leave this here. We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, let us know. We will be responding to your questions and comments as always on Alpha Bonus Bonus, uh, which is for patrons only. If you're not subscribed, well, you're listening to this, so you probably are. But uh, thank you for being with us, I guess. Uh, Catch you later. Bye-bye.